John 2 and verse 12. And we will read to verse 25. Let's read from verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And especially... <clears throat> Uh, verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And we pray that the Lord would open our eyes uh, this morning as we look unto his word. I feel myself a bit burdened and spiritually harassed, uh, per perhaps because of the, the content of the sermon and the message itself. But may God enable us, as we look at this together, to hear him uh, speak. Zeal for your house <clears throat> has eaten me up. After Jesus was in Cana and performed that flagship miracle that so largely symbolized all that he would do in transferring from old to new covenant and the great blessings that would come from it, he goes down to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Now remember as we look at this gospel, John is very close to Christ he is the disciple, after all, whom Jesus loved. And he was there from the beginning. He opens the gospel, in the beginning was the word. Well, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John was there. He saw everything. He was there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. He was there in private when Jesus was transfigured. And he was in the heart of the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus fell flat on his face and beheld the terror of the Lord, and became troubled even unto death. John saw all of it. And he's writing back here. He's commenting back on this incident. The other great historians of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, especially Matthew and Luke, write an extensive, detailed account of his ministry with all kinds of miracles, all kinds of sayings, Sermon on Mount, Olivet Discourse, all kinds of things. And John, when he writes, he chooses things that he knows that the church does not already know. 
He kind of avoids a lot of the information that's in the other Gospels. And one thing that does is it gives us an intimate front row seat at the very beginning of the ministry in detail. In fact, these first four chapters, well, chapter two to four, the narrative uh, that we'll be looking at uh, in the coming weeks, it, it constitutes a kind of circuit from Cana to Cana. It's meant to be considered as a whole. He begins at Cana with the wine, and then we're told that's the first of the signs. There's the special word that we always look for, signs. He did that first one. He goes down to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He meets with one of the greatest theologians of that day in Israel, and he interacts with him. And that theologian becomes aware very, very quickly that he's in the presence of someone a lot smarter and spiritual and prophetic than he could ever be. But then he moves from that great honored man of the Sanhedrin to an outcast, adulterous Gentile of Samaria, the worst of the worst in the Jew's mind. And he draws her almost like a bride. Some commentators say that, I wouldn't push it, that the wedding at Cana and that wine that he would give, he gives it to her and draws her that Nicodemus may not accept right away. And the Jews here, the, the authorities, which is what Jews means, it's not an ethnic, it's not saying just all the Jews were bad, but when it says the Jews said this unto him, it, it means first and foremost leaders, the Jews said unto him, they couldn't see it, and yet she did see it. And then evangelize the whole of Sychar. And they come and Jesus sees a harvest. And it closes a cycle. He heals someone else. And then it says at the, the very last verse of chapter 4, this again is the second sign. There's the technical phrase. The second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. So it's pairing that sign with the Cana wine. There's a sign at Cana, and then there's a sign at the end of chapter 4 that he does. And when it says first and second, it's talking about the two great signs he did in Galilee. We see in this chapter, for example, that he actually did a lot of signs in Jerusalem at this very feast. John doesn't even go into a description of them, and in a moment I'll tell you what I think is the reason why. But you have this first sign, and then this second sign that that initiated his Galilean ministry. Matthew and Luke don't go near any of this. John was there, and he says it's significant. This is how Jesus broke into Galilee. But before he did it, he, met, he went to the temple, he met with Nicodemus, he revealed himself in the city by doing many miraculous signs, and then he leaves. And he doesn't stay there with them. He goes to find one woman that will become the seed of an awakening, a converting awakening in Samaria itself. He's revealing the kind of Messiah he is. So that's what he's doing at this time. The moment he does this great sign in Galilee, he chooses to go to Judea. He doesn't perform a sign in Nazareth. He doesn't perform a lot of signs yet in Capernaum. He goes straight to the heart of the nation, and it's a high heart. It's, it's the administrative center. Like if you went to Washington, D.C. to make your point on Capitol Hill. But it's more than that. It's the spiritual center. He goes to the center of the city, to the very heart of God's covenant nation, into God's own temple itself, the very heart of the nation. Now he goes there, not not to just take part in worship or just to teach. He goes there first because there's a big problem in Israel. And it's exemplified in the temple in some ways. So by, by acting as he does in this temple, it will ripple out. He's making an impact in the temple that he wants to ripple out throughout the city and throughout uh, the nation. Though he goes to the heart of the nation here, he is concerned not just with the outward temple and God's worship 
and people's attitude to it, that temple, but the temple of the heart. The temple of the heart. Chapter 2, verse 24. After these things took place and he performed many signs, Jesus did not commit himself unto them, for he knew all men. He had no need that anyone testify of man. He knew what was in man. There he is. So we see him, our Lord and Savior, arriving with authority and doing something incredible at the temple, this great sanctuary that was holy and that represented what it meant to know God, what was needed to approach God, what God was like, what his covenant and gospel and law were like. But while he's doing that, he's simultaneously concerned with all the individual hearts. And that's what he does, right? We have our church, we have our denomination, and we reform it, and we put things in place, and we seek reform, and we go in, hopefully, as he does here, and we we cleanse and purge. Uh, But that's all supposed to be there, that a collection of human hearts and souls would come to him. That everyone in this collective church this morning would know him fully, savingly, lovingly. We're told uh, here that many believed in him in verse 23. Many believed in his name. John isn't saying there that that was saving, that they were regenerate. He's saying that they saw what he did in the temple, then they saw his miracles in the city, and they they assented. They kind of attached themselves and said, "I, I accept this. He did this. Nicodemus says, just a few verses later, as he goes to supposedly interview Jesus, and finds out that he's going to be interviewed, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with them. That's, that's the kind of thing the Jews were saying. There was this outward assent and immediate kind of acceptance that a new prophet may have arisen. And they weren't saying uh, he's tricking the people by doing these signs. They accepted that the signs happened. And they, they, they went as far as saying what Nicodemus said. He is from God. We don't know which one he is. We don't know if he's Jeremiah raised from the dead. We don't know if he's Elijah. We don't know if he is the Messiah or the prophet, but he's from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with them. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. That would never be said of someone who truly had found Christ, that Christ did not commit himself to them. That's exactly what he does if we truly believe. But it's like what you see in great evangelical uh, missions and uh, support, arranged revivals and evangelism and uh, big churches, or even if we do something like that, that there might be an impact and 50 people come and there's some kind of immediate acceptance or it looks like something's happening and we may, we may um, too quickly say, well, they've all believed, but Jesus is looking at the heart. He didn't commit himself to them because he knows what's in a man. And that a man can say, impressive. And I believe he did miracles. I believe he's the son of God. And I believe this is the right way to worship. And I want to take the Lord's Supper. Well, he knows what's in the heart. And if we truly know these things, because we only know these things truly if we know him. That's the question. Do do I and you know Christ? Do we know him? personally in relationship he had no need that anyone would testify of man for he knew what was in man now i think he does a sign here um there are debates about this kind of things in the people that study the scriptures uh there are seven signs that design this gospel The issue is, when Jesus walks on the water in chapter 6, he does it in the midst of a very long discourse about the bread of life. And while it is an immense miracle, and I think a sign in itself, it may not be the one that John considers one of the seven. The reason people think that is that it wasn't public, which is the whole message of chapter 1 to 12. The light, he does it publicly, and people are to believe in those signs. But once he does the sign of the bread, 
the walking on the sea is private for the twelve. Now, we don't doubt at all. It's an immense miracle, and we will consider it in this series. But here we have a kind of irony in this chapter that I think John is saying this is a sign, and it's because of uh, how much sign uh, verbiage and so on he puts in this chapter. Jesus does this, and they say immediately to him, who says you can do this? Show us a sign. And there may be an irony there. When Jesus multiplied the bread, what did they say to him? Moses gave us manna from heaven. You've done something with bread here, but it's not angel's food. It's not from heaven. It's not an immense miracle. It's very impressive that you did it. But show us a sign, they said. <laughs> show, us a, show us a sign, they said to him. When he fed 10,000 people, show us a sign. Man still does that. It doesn't matter what Jesus does, who he converts in your family, or if he brings awakening and a revival to a church or denomination, that he brings great conviction, that he can bring down his rod, as the prophets say, and send blight and mildew and, and plague, and he can chasten a nation over and over again, and their response is, show us a sign. He shows his signs by his rod, and he shows the signs of Jesus in this gospel that are to be read and believed. He shows signs like people being saved and regenerated around us and that turn from darkness into light. And he says, you don't get more signs than this. The greatest one he shows is, I rose from the dead. Look into it. Look into the facts. Look into the testimony. Look into the historical record. I rose from the dead. The sign of the prophet Jonah. And people say, I want a sign. God, if you will do this, I will, I'll believe in you. If you do this for my family or my business, then I'll know you're there. God doesn't do things like that. He doesn't play around with that. He gives us no signs when that's our attitude. Well, he comes in here and does something in the temple. And John thinks it's ironic that they say, well, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Verse um, 23 brings signs again. Many believed in his name when they saw, and it's, it is the Greek word for sign, they saw the signs which he did. Then Nicodemus says, um, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there's all these signs in Jerusalem. After he arrives in the temple, he does an extensive ministry of signs. He sits down with Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, you've done many signs. John doesn't mention one of them. Why? I think it's because those miracles are miracles and Jesus healed people. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us that Jesus healed a lot of people. And John is not going to spend time saying, then he healed this woman. Then he opened the ears of this man. John's saying, you know he does that. But though the sign language, if I can call it that, the language of signs is all around this chapter, the, the thing John focuses on is a very visible thing in the heart of Israel in the temple. He does it very visibly, and it does convey something. The prophets, uh, brothers and sisters, they, their signs were not always miracles. Um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the signs they did were not miracles. When they lay down and threw dust on their head or Ezekiel was naked or put a shawl around them, this was a thing to convey something about God and Israel. It was meant to be very vivid and impactful. And it was to do with God saying to his bride, you are unfaithful. A sign isn't always Elijah and Elisha raising a boy. That's not the only kind of sign. So... Uh, a great commentator on this gospel, Ritterboss, he, he says of this, it's a kind of, it's, a, it's the sign in John's gospel that isn't a sign. And he, he just means that in a certain way. So I don't want to be dogmatic. I have my own opinion on it. But we're looking at it because Jesus visibly signs out something here. I think he himself is the sign. The look on his face, his anger reveals the glory of God, what he does with a whip. This is the sign. His act in cleaning the temple is a great sign. And they say to him, show us a sign. So uh, we consider it and we'll consider other, the other signs in order as they come. But um, for you to understand 
uh, God's book um, to you as you read it. It's helpful to know these things. Now, he goes into the temple and there are, there are major problems. And we'll see the condition of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, and the fulfillment of the temple. Most of our time will be on the middle one, the cleansing, because it's, it's the sign. It's the thing that communicates to us. The other, uh, the, the other two sections are only to give some detail um, and a, a closing application that Jesus gives at the end. So we'll spend most of our time on the cleansing. But we first see the condition of the temple, and it's very straightforward, and some of you are familiar with it anyway, in verse 14. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and those who sold sheep and doves. Um, there's been a massive expansion in the temple in the prior generation to Jesus' incarnation. And um, it comes with the reign of Herod the Great. They themselves refer to it and are very, very proud of it. When he says, destroy this temple in verse 19, they say in verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days. They mock him. 46 years. Herod did this great expansion. I mentioned in our introduction sermon that two great menorahs, massive menorah lamps, seven branch lamps, were put in the courtyard of the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles to be lit. The altar was huge by this time. The altar that they offered animals on was huge. It was, the altar itself was probably half the size of the sanctuary in, in square area. This is a huge thing. Twenty men could walk up onto it at once, and there was animals offered on it all the time. Um, you'll remember when Zerubbabel and so on reconstituted the temple that people who remembered the prior temple had cried, and that we're told that the glory of this temple would be greater, not in this way, but actually connected to this event. The glory would be greater because Jesus himself would go to this temple. But it was built up over time and headed to establish his reign and to impress the Romans and so on. He, he built this magnificent thing, turned it into an amazing palace. And they had the sanctuary. They, they, um, well, I'll explain as we come to what these men were doing. They had the sanctuary. They had a court around that just for the men, then a court of women uh, that no Gentile could go beyond. And they had porches dividing that area and inscribed on the wall that if any Gentile entered, it would be on pain of death and that he would be stoned. Then they had a court of the Gentiles. So the whole thing just grew like a, a mega church. It just grew. This thing was huge. Hundreds of thousands of people could go to it on Temple Mount. But the problem is that we know Jesus discovers it here, or it, it, he, he found these things. He went to them. He probably saw this as he was growing up and going to Passover. He saw this that they've turned an area of the temple into a marketplace, a mall with bazaars and stores that have labeled on it, this stuff's for worship, so it's okay if we do this. They've turned it into a mall, markets, activity because of all the trade at the time of the feast as hundreds of thousands descend upon Jerusalem and need to exchange money, buy items, buy sacrifices, pay for, pay for cleansing and purification. Uh, the high priest or the de facto high priest, Annas, it was actually his son-in-law that was installed as high priest at this time uh, because he'd run his term. But as people who have power, when you've run your term, you find another way to still rule. You want a third term. So Annas is, he's in his third, fourth, fifth term. His son is high priest, but it's Annas who the Jews consider to be God's high priest. And Annas and his sons, by this time, are running this as a business. They have bazaars all over the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, so that when the tourists come in, there's all these things that you can buy and things you need, a long journey to Jerusalem. And they are making money off of this. But then they move certain things into the temple precinct itself. 
and it was known as the Bazaars of the Sons of Annas. That's what's going on there, and they're doing it in the court of the Gentiles. Now, God never, when he built the tabernacle and gave instructions, he never said there was going to be a court of men, women, Gentiles, and then um, it was the sanctuary for priests and a courtyard, and then Israel should approach that basic sanctuary. But they've added uh, these things, and they're doing this in the place they call the court of the Gentiles on Temple Mount. There's major issues with this in Jesus' eyes. There's the issue of money and the issue of animals. They're both mentioned here. Money, the only currency allowed on Temple Mount was the temple or Tyrian shekel. Ironically, that coin, that shekel, which was meant to be a kind of special money only for Jewish things and temple things, by that time, because they're under rule, it was actually a a, a coin from Tyre, a Tyrian shekel, a Roman coin that had Zeus and Beelzebub on the coin. So it shows some of the hypocrisy here when you see, you know the history of how they treated the temple and the way they viewed Gentiles and the way these priests went around. Well, they're, they're doing all this business with coins in God's temple that has these idols on the coins. By this time, that was the shekel. And um, to trade at the temple and to pay the annual temple tax or to buy a sacrifice or to pay for purification, you needed these coins. So you imagine what happened. The treasury said, we'll give you the coins and, we'll, and you'll pay a little bit you know, for the trouble we've gone to to provide them for you and the people that are working. And they basically set up a bank in the temple, in the court of the temple. That's referred to here by John, that there were changers there seated at tables. So it's kind of like tax men or temple IRS officials. And there's obviously a lot of them. And you would have to exchange your money. Now God said to give to the temple, and he said that there should be an upkeep of the temple, Exodus 30. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Half a shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. When you give an offering to the Lord, make atonement for yourselves. So it was just this basic thing that you've got this nation, if they all put a shekel in, the temple can be run. Uh, But that increases over time. Israel increases in population. All this money is going in. And the question becomes, well, what are they doing with the money? That's always the question. There's initial questions with the way some people get money, but then the the thing is, when the church has money, what does it do with it? There was was, uh, additions made to exchange this money to use it in Jerusalem to buy these things. Certain historians who know about these kinds of things say that the profits of the changers and the priests um, just on the interest alone in one year could be the equivalent to $1.5 million. So we're getting into big uh, evangelical church territory here with the amounts of money and so on. So there's problems with this money. You need to pay this. There are things you need to do at the temple, and there's interest to change the currency. They wouldn't accept your currency from your hometown. Then there's a fee to inspect your animals. So if you bring your own sacrifice, your pigeons or your sheep, to the temple, and you take them all that way, you have to pay the priesthood, the sons of Annas, to check all of your cattle uh, and your sheep and so on, and they'll tell you if they're acceptable, and you pay them a fee for that. So the priesthood was making money from that. Um, One of the one of, one of the priesthood families hired someone to go and live on a large farm in Israel, a large cattle farm, and spend the whole year just analyzing and documenting all the kind of blemishes and sicknesses that could come 
upon an animal so that they could write big, you know, IRS code as to what constituted a blemish that you couldn't give these animals and so on. So you take an animal to the temple, and there is a guy there with a big manual, and you say, this is wrong with the animal's ear, and he looks it up and says, that's not acceptable to God. We saw some of this last time, didn't we? This is what becomes of us. This is what becomes of religion. This is what becomes of formal, man-made additions and so on. Of course God told us, don't offer your lame animals to me. Don't keep the good ones for yourself and then offer me the lame one. We know God said that, and we know that the sacrifices were to be without serious blemish because they imaged Christ. But they're making money from doing this. We'll inspect your animals and give you a certificate, which is what they did, but you need to pay for it. Then if you, if you were worried about that and you didn't want to take that chance of traveling thousands of miles with animals or buying your own somewhere else in Jerusalem only to find the priest would not accept it, there were ready-made sacrifices at the temple that the priests had pre-approved that were all without blemish and fulfilled the, the regulations and you, had to, you would pay for these. And you would pay, because of the, the sons of Annas, sometimes three times as much what the animal was worth. You remember Joseph and Mary probably did this when Jesus was born, when they went to the temple after he was born to pay his redemption money. Every son that opens the womb had to be redeemed to show that we're sinners and God only gives us our sons by his grace. So you, you paid ransom money for your firstborn son. God paid ransom money for his own firstborn son on the cross. And for us, he paid ransom money for us. Joseph and Mary went to pay that ransom money and for Mary's purification after a month to be complete and to be approved by a priest. So they went to the temple and they, they paid both of these fees and a pigeon was purchased to offer so that Mary would be ceremonial, ceremonially pure because when you gave birth, you were unclean. You were unclean in the blood of that birth. So even though it was Jesus that she gave birth to, the law said she was unclean, and she went there, and Luke does this on purpose, I think, to show a contrast. She goes there to see these priests to approve of her readmission with her child. And a pigeon is bought. She, was, she may have been overcharged for it, and it was offered by one of these priests who may have been unconverted. And he goes onto the altar and kills the pigeon and so on, and that makes Mary clean. But the priests aren't mentioned. She actually sees some real priests when she's at the temple. Simeon and Anna, people who really have the Spirit of God. And rather than being told, the pigeon is killed and now you're clean, she was given a real spiritual feeding uh, by going to the temple because there were still people in the temple at that time that were actually spiritual. Simeon, Anna that spoke to her of the things concerning her son. But the Jews all had to do this, and Mary and Joseph always obeyed the law outwardly, so they did it. Jesus was there as an infant. He was there at 12, and whenever else that the Lord has not seen fit to tell us exactly when he was there. But here he is, baptized with the Holy Spirit, with the authority of his father, having done jewel with the kingdom of darkness and Satan himself for 40 days without food. And he comes to this temple and he sees all this. It shouldn't bother him. It doesn't inconvenience Jesus. He's not going to the court of the Gentiles. He'll go into the court of the men. The court of the woman, where he sees a Jewish woman giving the last of her substance. Or where he sees Pharisees going to the 13 ornately carved wooden trumpets that were covered in gold, that were for the tithes, that the Pharisees would take their coins in and go up to the trumpet. You threw your tithe in the mouth of the trumpet. The trumpet signified God's power and all of these things. And they would, they would actually throw in the coins one by one in front of everyone throwing their coins in, their offering. Jesus would be going there. But he goes through the court of the Gentiles and sees 
extortion and banking and fleecing God's people for sacrifices, increased rates, interest, paying to have your animals checked, paying to have animals provided, an extra fee for the priest to offer your animal. It's like a mall, like Disney World, like these places you go and there's always an admin fee and an added fee and a tax. And this is in God's house. The animals are a problem too. Maybe you don't think of that. You say, well, animals are in the temple and maybe that wasn't appropriate. But they were running a farm, a cattle market in God's temple courts. Noise, smell, distraction, just disrespect. A Gentile goes up there to pray. And there's cows everywhere, and sheep, and pigeons. And they're all of, all of the dirt and muck and refuse that comes from these animals, and the smell of it, and people bargaining for animals, and people changing money, and people in a rush and wanting to get in quickly, and people talking. And this was meant to be God's sanctuary. Where a Gentile went to seek the Lord, all the way from Ethiopia or from India. Or from Spain. And he arrives, and the priests, the sons of Annas are saying, Oh, we run our business in there. And we make a lot of money from it. Money and animals are a problem, and the high priest family, you wouldn't be surprised to hear, abused the whole thing and enriched themselves. This was very unpopular with the people, and the men who were running it know that. I think that's why they don't attack Jesus. The, the people hated this. It's well documented how they felt about it. The extortion was so bad on one occasion that one of Annas' sons came out and actually told them to put the prices down because they put them up way too high. 50 to 100 denarii to buy an, an animal. And even Annas's, one of Annas' sons said, this isn't good. This isn't right. This is just going to cause a problem. They were raking it in. This is the song that they would sing about the sons of Annas. Woe to the house of Annas. Woe to their serpents hiss. They are high priests and sons, keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guarders of the temple. And their servants they beat with staves. That's what the people thought of the high priest and his family and them enriching themselves. The people were very displeased. But someone else is very displeased. The zealous one. The one who's hot with the holiness and righteousness of God. And the way God views any human corruption, especially when it's in the church. What were the high priests and these money changers who made so much money? What were they all doing with the Lord's people's money? Were they helping the poor with it? Were they helping the assemblies of the land? Were they furthering the cause of Jehovah? Was it used to bless Was it used to help? What about all the ones down at the Pool of Bethesda, less than a mile away? The decrepit, who have nothing to eat and can't help themselves. Were they housed? Were they helped in any way? Or were they just cursed and throw away? Jesus went down there. That's where Jesus goes. He doesn't go to large Sanhedrin meetings and say, I really like the suits you're all wearing. That's not where he goes when we're not spiritual. He hates that. He sees decrepit sinners who can't move, that no one's been able to help for 30 years, and Jesus is interested in that. What about the man at the gate beautiful? Peter and John actually had no gold and silver to help him, but he sat at the gate beautiful right in between the court of the woman and the court of the Gentiles. And John and Peter passed him, And they actually didn't have money because of the choices they'd made as disciples. They were serving Jesus. 
But were, was the temple helping these people? Oh, there's the man at the gate, beautiful, begging. He can't walk. It's probably because his parents sinned. He's cursed. We are the priests of Annas. We are blessed. God loves us. He's given us this temple. And Caesar is on good terms with us. And they guards themselves. Well, what does Jesus think of that? Luke 16, verse 1. The Pharisees were lovers of money. Now, I'm not going after the Pharisees right now. These were Sadducees and priests running this temple. But it shows you Jesus' attitude. I'm sure some of the Pharisees even had a problem with what the temple was doing. The Pharisees were lovers of money. Luke has a big problem with it. And the stories of riches in that gospel and how much Jesus went after these people is very clear. Luke 11, verse 39, he says to them, You Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Give alms of such things you have, and all things shall be clean unto you. That's the way Jesus views it when his people become affluent in a Western society and were, you know, post-1930s, 1950s, globalized economy, lots of people getting wealthy to a level that people in the past couldn't have imagined, and we have so much stuff and accounts and investments and clothes and possessions and money. We must be careful Because to live at ease, as I preached to you a couple of weeks ago, to be at ease is not an easy thing. It's to have what we need is no easy thing. Because then we become responsible for it. And what we do with it and how we use it, and it reveals our hearts. Jesus said to Moses in Exodus 22, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor, you shall not be like a moneylender unto him. You shall not charge him interest. Deuteronomy 15, you shall surely give to him. Your heart should not be grieved when you give it to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works, for the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and needy in your land. Some estimates say that the temple treasury could have anything between $50 million and $150 million in it at one time. This is a big business that a lot of people rely on and have to follow because they're Jewish. What did Jesus do? He cleansed the temple. He took, in verse 15, a whip. He made a whip from cords. This is a word for a rope that's made of bulrushes. I remember when I was younger, a minister saying, he took bulrushes from the floor of the temple, and he made a rope out of it. And I always had an issue with what happened. I think it's just clear. This is a word that's used frequently for rope. There were ropes around because of the animals and the carts and the boxes and storage and so on. And Jesus knew what was in that temple, but in coming back to it and seeing it and breathing it in, there's a reaction in his humanity. And he's hot with the anger of his divine person. And he looks and he sees the ropes. And he picks them up and makes a kind of whip. It's the same word for scourge, like how he was scourged by the Romans. He puts a few of them together and he lifts them up and he moves towards where they are. And we're told he drove them out or expelled them in verse 15. Literally, he threw them out of the place. So he, he went over to where the animals were and he's whipping at them. I think it's fair to say, not to hurt the animals, to startle them and get them moving. And the the men are looking, saying, who's this? It's like a John the Baptist move, this. Who, Who is this? They're not expecting it. And they're not strong, because unspiritual people aren't strong. They get away with what they're doing. But when holiness comes in, it's startling and it creates fear and you don't know what to do. Because holiness and authority is present. And he just 
whips towards the animals and they start to move. And that's not enough. He, he moves over to where the money changers are and he picks up their boxes and bags and pours out the coins everywhere and then he throws over their tables. He's, he's angry. He's angry. He doesn't throw around the doves or their cages. He, he doesn't hurt these animals. He says to the men who are selling the doves, take these away. So he gets the cattle and sheep moving. He tells the dove sellers, get rid of these. Get these out of here. And then he goes to the money changers and he just throws their tables over. This is a prophetic action. He is angry. Sometimes we think anger is wrong. This is not, he's not out of control here. This, this is the, the hot lava of a pure and righteous anger under complete control. He's not losing his temper here, but he is furious. He hates this, and he has the authority to do something about it. We don't do exactly the same thing, although there's so much debauchery and corruption of worship in the church. Sometimes I think some ministers should go in and throw over a table or two. Why does he do this? Zeal. And that's why more ministers and and others don't do certain things. I'm not advocating destruction of property. But it's not wisdom that keeps them back. They say it is. It's not gentleness that keeps them back. It's a lack of zeal. Don't believe it. When a minister allows corruptions in the church of Christ and in a congregation, and to move like leaven among the church, and he tells you he's allowing it, Because he's patient, wise, and gentle. He's not. He's a coward, and he has no zeal for God. And I'm not saying that because I think I have it. It's not about those comparisons. I wish I did have his zeal. The right zeal. The pure zeal. The zeal that acts fearlessly, wisely, and with a scalpel cuts where the cuts need to happen. But zeal, and it's gone. Um, I'm pushed for time as usual, so I'm going to use some of this material again, as the Lord enables me. But let me just continue for a few minutes. Zeal. Now I'll come to this in more applications as I, as I deal with this, uh, from this material. Um... There's several things I'll say in the context of the sermon that are now missing from the Church of Christ, the Western Reformed Church I'm talking about, not the Chinese Church, the Western Reformed Church. But this is certainly one of them. Zeal. Jesus says, be zealous and repent to Laodicea. Boil up. Not out of control. It doesn't give license, uh, you know, to... ministers who, I'm not going to say newly ordained, because being newly ordained is not a problem. Sometimes being ordained for too long is a problem, not the newly ordained. But if the character is not fully formed yet to maturity, there can be something that begins as a kind of zeal, and it it acts a bit incompetently or does the wrong thing. And then then the person will say, but I was just being zealous. Uh, I'm not saying let's lose control and things like that, but zeal has gone. Zeal has gone. Do you know how I know that zeal has gone? Because God has not revived the Western Reformed Church since 1859. No one wants to talk about it, accept it, or even be intelligent enough to understand why. We are not the same as seven or eight generations ago. We aren't the same people. There was a zeal, a spirituality a knowledge in how to suffer and go without, that you could live just in a brick hut with a Bible and a lamp and a job and a flock and a croft 
and be more godly than any of us. We don't have zeal for the temple of God and for his work. We don't have enough zeal. Jesus' zeal here eats him up. The language of the psalm that's quoted here that prophesied of Jesus, it's not tame suggestive language. It's, it's highly poetic and descriptive. It's eating him up. It's consuming him. The psalm doesn't say, zeal is upon my will, and I use it accordingly. It says it's eating him up. Now he sees something here that just, it staggers him, it displeases him, it moves him. He has a holy reaction to it. Why? Because this is Temple Mount. This is the holy hill of the Lord. And people will say, but it wasn't the inner sanctuary. It wasn't the court of the men. It was these courts they'd added. And it's the court of the Gentiles. It's not really a holy place. Jesus says it is. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Verse 16. They said it was a holy place. It's on Temple Mount. They attached it to the temple and they said it was for worship. And then they filled it with animals. And Jesus says, I consider that an affront to my father and to me. Holiness adorns thine house for endless days, O Lord, the psalmist says. Here, here's another thing we sing. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. God is to be feared. He is to be reverenced. He is to be greatly respected in love. He is to be consulted and obeyed. He is to be honored and glorified. And he is not like us. Let me say something about holiness to close and we'll reconsider these things next time. He is to be honored in this way. That mount was holy. It was the holy mount of God. He selected it and he descended upon it in his glory. And the moment that he located himself there and his spirit touched that mountaintop, it was holy like him. It's his place. It's demarked and fenced off as a place that's special to him where he wants to dwell without being sullied and defiled by all of our sin. It's his house. It's heaven descended upon a mount. And as he told Moses, I'm in this bush in my flame. So take the shoes from your feet. For the ground on which you stand is holy. That's even more true here. This is the mount of the Lord. He descended. He touched it. And he dwelt there. He lived there. This is his house, what he calls sinners, through gospel of grace, to come near him through certain channels. But he will not give up his holiness. Holy means separate, other, transcendent, of another nature entirely. If you were taken up in a shuttle right now and you went to some other star cluster and you were brought before one of these stars that just dwarfs our sun in its greatness and immensity and unspeakable power and burning and heat, you'd say, I'm in the presence of the other. The other. This isn't like me. This isn't like our forests and sea. This isn't like basking in the sun from a hundred million miles away. This is other. It's not human. It's not like my mind. 
It's not like my body, and I better respect it. And that thing was created by the Lord. He made the stars also. Now, if the one who made that, if that's like that, what is the one who made it like? I can't, I can't tell you, I can convey some of it. But he is a spirit and consuming fire. He is infinitely transcendent above our nature. When he reveals himself unto people immediately, they go mad or they cower in terror or they fall down as dead. That's what happens when people see God. And he descended on this mountain. No wonder when he descended on Sinai, he put a sign up that said, anyone who touches this mountain or any animal that touches it shall be put to death. Because it's holy. Sinai was holy And this mountain was holy because it was the court of the Lord, his kingly house and court, and had holiness imprinted upon it. And there were walls to separate you from him. There was a temple wall and sanctuary to separate non-priests to remain outside. And even when priests went in, there was a curtain to separate every one of those priests, to say, don't come near me. Only the high priest can come in to my throne room. Now, I'm emphasizing this because it's my calling to and because it's not my job today to emphasize, don't worry about God. He will accept you, draw near. That's for another time. What I just described to you there is not what the evangelical church says in general about God. And I, and I say very reservedly, it is not what is conveyed even in most reformed churches. It's kind of known in the mind, studied, discussed at Bible studies, but it's not the experienced reality of the Christian alone with God and in the worship of God, where people come together and they lift up their praises unto him. He presences himself in the convictions of his spirit and the dynamic power of his word making it effectual and so pours out his spirit that we are saturated and know that we are in the presence of one who is to be feared. And where someone comes in from the outside and says, God is with them. We aren't that much different than the temple at this time. You widen it out to um, the young, restless and reformed churches, broad evangelical churches, um, those kinds of churches, multi-campus churches, big Baptist successful churches, Presbyterian, big Presbyterian churches, and we all wear suits, and um, we're all dressed properly, and we have a good bulletin, and there's a lot of activity, and we say, come, let's very civilly enter now the presence of God and sing this, and then I'll give a talk, and, and so on. And you don't see in us or them, you don't see that when we approach God, we're approaching a dangerous place, a holy place, and ministers fool around and flippantly joke as they preach. Uh, they don't behave in a proper manner. There's too much late, uh, levity. There's uh, People are relaxed and they come in with their coffees and they put their feet up. And I'm not even getting at all of the people. They're doing that because it's normal, friends. It's normal. There was a time I might have done that. They come in and they open up their notepad and they say, uh, there's going to be a lecture on Reformed theology now and I'm, I'm going to take notes and I'll learn something today. And it's no different than a university class. A lot of these sins, sometimes they're not even intentional from us. It's because of our ignorance and stupidity. They thought they could do this on God's mountain. 
and they couldn't. They couldn't do it on God's mountain. He drove them out now. And the thing was sealed when what not one stone was left on the other. 30, 40 years later. Uh, we don't mess around with Christ because he has the zeal of the Lord. He is the Lord. The Lord shall come unto his temple and shall purify the sons of Israel. Christ treats this place as holy. And it is holy. I'm going to pick up more of this next week, but hear this as we close. That's not my Jesus. My Jesus is loving and gracious, and that's Old Testament, and that's law and ceremony. Jesus feels differently about us now, and he says, suffer not the children to come unto me. He's always welcoming. This is gospel, and we don't have a temple anymore. There is no holy place. It's in heaven. And when we come to worship, we hear the word of God and learn things and we lift up some good songs unto him and it helps us. This is not a new covenant problem. That's what people say. My friend, when we come here, we come unto a heavenly mercy seat on which the blood of the Son of God was spilled. We come into the very throne room, the spiritual throne room, of an awesome and awful and holy and glorious being who will not look upon our sin. We come unto a spiritual mountain. You're standing on it right now. Mount Zion. It's made of spirit, not brick. It rises up to heaven and its top is in God's own throne room. It worships with heaven. It is his holy mount of which this temple only typified. And we stand upon it in spirit, Jesus says. And it's not that it's easier for us, it's worse. It's worse. Because we do not come to the mountain that may be touched with hands that we can see and that shook and trembled with blackness and cloud. We come unto the mountain of Christ, to the spiritual Jerusalem, to a holy mountain, to the spirit of just men made perfect, to an innumerable company of angels, to God the judge of all, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And he tells us there that we must have grace to worship God acceptably in reverence and in fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We come in the Reformed Church and we study things, but experientially we're very bad because we're coming to a fiery, burning bush and mountain. And that is our God. A most pure fire. He hates sin and he loves grace. But when we mess around in his church and defile it, his fire will burn it up. We should fear him. Have some zeal for that, brethren. And may we look at these things again next time. May God bless to us these thoughts um, on his word. Let's stand to pray. Let us pray. Glorious Father in heaven, show us who you are. Reform our hearts. Give us a thirst to experience you truly and spiritually. To meet spirit to spirit when we worship you. Our soul is a spirit. Thou art a spirit. And our souls must meet you. One spirit is defiled and weak and contaminated and small. And it has at times rebelled against you. The other spirit is eternal. And in that spirit is all life eternal. The living God. In that spirit is purity and holiness. 
and perfect righteousness and glorious wisdom and holy love and grace and mercy. Help us to meet with you truly to meet with Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. They say he is not concerned about holiness, that to love his law is to be a Pharisee, and they make unto themselves another Jesus that lets everything go, that doesn't care about his reverence or the depth of spirit in his worship, does not care about glory and praise and fear, and that we behave appropriately in his presence and not relaxed as though we come unto the holy but treat him as common. He is the one with eyes like a flame of fire. He is the one who looks upon the lampstands. He is the one that looks unto each church and he knows their works and he sees it and he deals with it. Removing lampstands, revealing lost love, declaring death unto a people whose name is alive and telling his lukewarm church, who have no zeal, you disgust me. I will spit thee out of my mouth. O Lord, show us him this day, and as the common all throughout this land, this day, the common and unholy, not fitting for your day, the idols of this land, the worldliness and the desecration of your day that your, church, your professing people have engaged in in their millions and in their churches. Christ looks upon it and is filled with zeal and says, get these things out of my house and out of my people. Go with us from this place and sanctify these truths unto us. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen.